1989 we were 17 and we still had our cherries. To be a virgin at that age is nothing to be particularly proud of and nothing to be particularly ashamed of, but it's something that weighs on your mind. The winter I turned 16 I'd run away from home. My reason for doing so was that I perceived a fundamental contradiction in the entire entrance examination system and wanted to get away from my home and school and out on the streets in order to better think about this and to ponder the significance of the struggle that had developed that year between the student radicals and the aircraft carrier enterprise. Sorry, that's not exactly true. The truth is that I didn't want to take part in long-distance races at school. Long-distance running had always been a weak point with me. I'd hated it ever since junior high school. Now that I'm 32 and wiser, of course, I still hate it. It wasn't that I was a wimp or anything. It's just that I had the habit of abruptly slowing down to a walk and deciding that I'd run enough. It wasn't that I get a pain in my side or feel sick or dizzy either. Just that as soon as I felt a bit tired, I started walking. If anything, in fact, I was healthier than most. My lung capacity measured over 600 cc and uh, soon after I got to high school I'd found myself among 13 or 14 boys summoned to the track and field club room. The coach was a young guy, recent graduate of the Nippon College of Health and Physical Education. He was one of six new PE instructors the school had hired to help prepare us for the National Athletic Meet which was to be held in Nagasaki two years later. One was an expert at judo. One at the team handball, one at the basketball, one at the field events, one at swimming, and one at long distance running. In 1989, with much the National Athletic Meet became one of the rallying cries of our student uprising. These experts were a convenient target to attack. They didn't like us much either. Kawasaki, the running coach, had square head, curly hair and short but powerful legs that had earned him Japan's third best time in the 5,000 meters. This was speed he had made us listen to in the club room. For 15 years old, you boys have all got terrific lungs. I want you to form a long distance relay team. No one's forcing you to join, of course, but I strongly recommend that you do. You may not know it, but you were all born to be long-distance runners, and we're going to make champions out of you. I was appalled to learn that my cardiopulmonary system had condemned me from birth to this dismal prospect. Once winter vacation was over, all our PE classes were devoted to training us for the annual school marathon. That first year I was subjected to a constant stream of abuse from Kawasaki, because I tended to slow abruptly to a walk, he called me a quarter scumbag. Listen, he said, running is the basis of all sports. No, it's more than that, it's the basis of life. People are always comparing life to a marathon, right? And you, bum, you've got a long capacity of 6100 and you just slack off and haven't run the distance once? You're a scumbag. You'll end up in the gutter, wait and see. Scumbag and bum. Is that any way for an instructor to speak to an impressionable teenager? Not that I couldn't understand where he was coming from. It was true, after all, that having run for about 500 meters, I'd stopped to stroll along with all the slopes, chatting about the Beatles and girls and motorbikes and what have you, 
And then when there were 500 meters or so left to go, I'd start running again and wouldn't even be breathing hard as I crossed the finish line. It's all my fault. I didn't bring you up properly. My long-suffering mother, who was in Korea during the war, says even to this day. When things get a bit difficult, I quit. When some little thing stands in my way, I just give up and go with the flow, always looking for the easy way out, the path of least resistance stopped me, she says. I hate to say it, but she is right. Nevertheless, I did take part in the long-distance race my first year. The course covered seven kilometers, from the school to Mount Iboshi, halfway up the mountain and back. Along with the geeks, the physically unfit and my fellow godless wonders, I walked silently up the mountain road to the turning point, being passed by a number of girls who'd start five minutes later, then bounded lightly back down the road to the school where most of the students were already wrapped in blankets, gasping for breath or being led off, puking to the first aid room or drinking hot glucose with trembling hands. And when I crossed the finish line, number 598 out of 662 male students, whistling a day in the life, not only Kawasaki but most of the teachers there agreed that I was come. Being the sensitive child I was, I didn't want to go through that sort of thing again, so in the winter of my second year, when I was 16, I ran away from home. I whipped through the nearly 30,000 yen I had in postal savings and headed for the sprawling metropolis of Hakata. In addition to avoiding the school marathon, there was one other thing I wanted to accomplish during this trip, losing my virginity. As soon as I reached Hakata, I checked into the ANI hotel, the fanciest hotel in all of the Kyushu at the time, then put on my George Harrison style tweed jacket and hit the streets. I was uh, strolling down an avenue lined with leafless trees, singing She's a Rainbow, when a woman's voice said, Hi there. It was dusk and the sky was pale and hard stirring purple. The voice belonged to a woman several years older than me who looked a lot like Marianne Faithful and was driving a silver E-type Jaguar. She beckoned to me with her forefinger, opened the door of the jug and said, I have a favor to ask you. Would you mind getting in? Please. I got in. Her perfume was intoxicating. You see, she said, I used to be a top fashion model, but I got into a bit of trouble in Tokyo and had to hide out down here for a while and now I am working at a very exclusive club called Cactus. And I got involved with this customer and it's turning into a problem. Because he's a Yakuza, who owns a lumberyard, and he wants to set me up with his mistress and won't take no for an answer, but, well, I don't really need the money, I don't want to be anybody's mistress, so I told him I've got the younger brother who's my only living relative, and he's got heart disease, so I have to stay with him. But I don't actually have any brothers, so I was planning to get somebody to play the part, but I never got around to it, and today's the day I'm supposed to go talk to the guy, so... She asked me if I'd be willing to pretend to be her brother for just one day. I looked at her silver fox coat and her crimson nail polish and her miniskirt and her long slender legs and naturally agreed to help. She took me to a river from building where the Yakuza had an office on the seventh floor. He was a huge guy in his early sixties with a bull neck and seven young punks working for him. Some of the punks had tattoos. The guy said he looks awful healthy for a kid with heart disease. Then he slapped himself on the chest and said, Anyway, just leave it to me. I'll pay for the aberration. We don't need your money, I said. 
My sister's not going to be your mistress, and that's all there is to it. His sidekicks got pissed off at this and started shouting, and two of them pulled knives out on their belts. I stood in front of the woman to protect her and said, If you've got to kill somebody, kill me. Then I made up some stuff about how our parents had divorced and we'd been raised by our grandmother and she died four years ago and now it was just me and my sister and we'd promised each other to stick together through thick and thin and that someday we'd find a way to be happy no matter what. Deep down inside, as it turned out, the Yakuza was a real softy. And by the time I'd finished, he had tears in his eyes and was mumbling, Okay, you win. The woman was thrilled. To celebrate, we had a full-course dinner at a French restaurant where she poured me some red wine and whispered, You're quite a guy, aren't you? Afterwards, she took me to her place. It was a big open-style condominium, the kind you see in the movies, with a king-size bed right in the middle of it. The woman giggled and said, I'm going to take a shower. Don't go away. And disappeared into the bathroom. I kept telling myself, keep cool, but I didn't know what the hell to do and just sat there pulling the zipper on my pants up and down. Eventually she reappeared wearing a see-through black negligee and said, you don't know how grateful I am. Tonight I'm all yours, I know that's not enough though, so I want you to have the jug as well. It suits you perfectly. At least that's the story I made up for my friends when I got back. The truth is a little different.